The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So with this talk, we come to the fifth of the five talks on the second noble truth, part of a four-week series on the four noble truths. As I said yesterday, the primary reference point for many of the interpretations of the Four Noble Truths that as they come down to us down through the ages is what appears in what's called the Buddha's First Sermon. And mostly some of the popular interpretations don't really take in all that it's uh, the teachings there about the Second Noble Truth. They often will stop and say this, that um, suffer, that uh, craving thirst, tanna in Pali, is the cause or the condition or the source, the origin for suffering. And that's a very useful interpretation, as I've been saying, uh, that just having that idea can help people investigate their lives very effectively and see where uh, craving or strong desire causes limitations, causes challenges and distress for people. Uh, however, the, uh, <clears throat> uh, and this idea that it's the cause is a little bit, you know, kind of almost one way of kind of making logical sense of this idea that the explanation says the noble truth of the arising of suffering is that <clears throat> craving. So then just stop there and then create, okay, craving. So how is it that craving is arising, the su- causes the rising of suffering? Well, it must be the source, it must be the, the, the origin. However, as I said yesterday, the full explanation is that it's that suffering, that, that craving that leads to rebirth or re-becoming, literally. And, um, and that what the text is explaining is not the source, the origin, the cause of all suffering that humans have, but it's the original cause, uh, like, you know, that from in a previous lifetime because there was a craving for rebirth. And you don't get born into the world of suffering unless you crave to be born again. And so in this interpretation, it's the idea is to become free of rebirth by becoming free of that craving for rebirth. This idea for the Four Noble Truths Uh, almost certainly didn't come from the Buddha in the way it's been formulated and probably was composed maybe 100 years after his life. Perhaps a time when the idea of rebirth became increasingly important in Buddhism in a way that doesn't really represent how important it was in the earliest period of Buddhism. But still, it gives us this wonderful interpretation of just the craving is the, is the, the cause of suffering Sometimes that's very useful. Sometimes that interpretation gets in the way. It leads to too much analysis and trying to figure out. Some of the other interpretations, um, conditionality and especially inconstancy, that um, seeing that, especially inconstancy where the, the idea is that the noble truth of the arising of suffering is simply the arising, how it appears. And something about seeing something appear where there's space, there's recognition, there can be even a sense of independence from it. It's there and I'm here. We're not the same thing. 
And it's the beginning of a process of becoming freer of suffering. And so, so in a sense, rather than solving suffering and figuring it out, it's learning to have a different relationship to suffering by seeing it as arising and ceasing, coming and going. The explanation of uh, craving, that craving that gives rise to rebirth, actually continues. There's a second half of it, which I would like to refer to today and uh, offer an interpretation, which maybe is a nice segue uh, into what we're going to do next week. So, as I said yesterday, um, I'm reading Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, and, um, and he uses the word origin for samadaya, the word that means arising. He translates origin, and now we understand why he does that, because it's this original craving that gives birth, rise to birth. Um, now, this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is the craving that leads to renewed existence accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there. So first to say this, the craving that is accompanied by delight and lust, I think the idea in the ancient world is that this original craving that leads to rebirth, we all, the kind of fundamental drive to be reborn is a kind of lusting or wanting of pleasure or delighting in the world. So we want more of it. Um, so that's kind of a, one of the fundamental kind of concerns of early, some of early Buddhism, this idea of not having that kind of desire for the world that, uh, that is just delighting, relishing in it, that keeps us going in, in the cycles of rebirth. And then it goes on and says, that is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for extermination. Bhikkhu has this big word, extermination. That's kind of big and a little bit dangerous and and sounding a little bit like um, violent even. <clears throat> the literal meaning for, what the little word, literal word for existence and extermination is a bhava and a bhava. Bhava means becoming, and that's a little difficult word in English that so many people will translate it as existence, and, uh, but becoming, coming into being. And um, one reason why that's important is that uh, existence can seem a little bit static. Becoming is a constantly dynamic process of a process of coming into coming into becoming, coming into being. That's constantly we're doing. We're participating in a constant process of coming into being. And then abhava is not being, not becoming. So not having that process continue. So so. This, uh, the ending or the, the not not becoming not so not exactly not existing but n- no longer contributing to this becoming so uh, so in with the idea of rebirth as the framework for this interpretation uh, uh, that is when it says that there's the craving for sensual pleasure um, uh, that's really deep in human beings the desire for pleasure and um and maybe deeper than most people realize. And uh, some people are a little bit put off by the constant early Buddhist emphasis on that being trapped or caught by sensual pleasures, the craving for sensual pleasures being a problem. But um, sensual pleasure means any movement towards comfort, any movement towards uh, any kind of pleasure, not the more dramatic ones of 
you know, Epicurean kind of just enjoying, um, you know, food or enjoying sex or whatever it might be. Uh, many of the small ways that people live their lives, many people live their lives, is oriented around making themselves more comfortable. Even like how we sit in a chair or how we sit at a table or or how we might buy food that's more, doesn't, we have to pay, pay more for it than we absolutely have to because it's, um, we get more pleasure from it. Um, we might buy some clothes that they're more than what we need, but we get pleasure from it. There's pl- the day of receiving pleasure from experience is really a deeply ingrained thing in human nature. And, um, and it's going to be one of those things that people crave. And in craving, uh, they suffer, can suffer, feel frustrated, feel upset, be, you know, be driven by it. The next two, becoming and not becoming, uh, some people uh, translate this almost as identity, uh, forming an identity of who we are, being, being some, uh, you know, um, uh, creating an identity, creating a sense of I am this, or creating a sense of I'm not that, not to be that, kind of a non-identification of something. Um, and so, you know, you see, you know, and it may be in a kind of simple way is um, the clothes people choose to wear sometimes has to do with forming an identity, becoming something for other people. Whereas uh, some people have the opposite, they don't want to become. So, for example, there are some people who are very happy to have logos like of their college or high school on their sweatshirt and they've kind of assumed that identity. They become something, you know, person from that school or their sports team or something or their favorite company. Um, and then there's people, uh, and I fall in this camp, I have a little bit of tendency to this ababa, non-becoming. Um, I really don't want to wear anything that has a logo on it. And uh, it's very rare, I think you'll ever see me do this, and um, I'm not particularly proud of this tendency, but it's maybe a little bit this movement, like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be. So that's, my, my, you know, my thing. And uh, so this becoming identity. So when uh, in this rebirth can be pulled in, the idea of the wanting to be reborn can be desire for becoming, to exist again. The, f- the, the paradox here is that the craving for non-becoming non-existing, because it's craving, is also a cause to becoming reborn. In other words, if a person doesn't want to be reborn so strongly that there's a craving not to be reborn, paradoxically, that very craving is what gets them reborn, because craving is such a strong drive and push. So in my teachings, in my practice myself, it's very rare that I'm making much reference to rebirth. It's not really an important part of what I feel like I want to teach or what I part of my own practice. So, but I offer you what uh, is in the very traditional text so you understand the full range of what the f- goes on with these Four Noble Truths and the, all the different interpretations of it. But I am uh, partial to the interpretation of this rebirth or this uh, becoming and non-becoming as not being about uh, re- being reborn one lifetime after another, but about, about, about being reborn moment by moment. That there's a constant movement we have of craving for pleasure or avoiding displeasure, 
movement of becoming something, identifying something, assuming an identity, um, being someone, asserting ourselves as being someone, um, you know, uh, or the opposite, not wanting to be and hiding or shutting down or or avoiding uh, something. And this constant kind of becoming and non-becoming, identifying and then disidentifying, uh, it can be uh, an incessant form of suffering, incessant form of ongoing manufacturing, constructing, concern, preoccupation for human beings. And, um, and, uh, and this doesn't have to be we don't have to live with an incessant preoccupation, a craving, an addiction even for some people for pleasure, an addiction to identity, to self, to being someone, to um, having a, you know, a clearly constructed sense of self that we present to the world or a clearly constructed sense idea of what we don't want to present to the world and hide from. And... and um, and so when we learn to sit still in meditation, and that's why I did this meditation on today on, on uh, you know, the stillness of the mind, is the, when the mind doesn't move, it, when the mind moves, it's often because it wants and doesn't want. And uh, it wants becoming or doesn't want becoming. And even the idea of not wanting or non-becoming is being trapped in the cycles of becoming, of craving and suffering. And the interesting question, and this is the question that I'll leave here for today, is that um, if becoming is a source of suffering, and the opposite, non-becoming is a source of suffering, um, what's the solution? What's the third option? Um, and. Um, if non-becoming just creates more becoming, more ongoing creation, what is the third option? That's why I think Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation of existence and extermination is a little bit difficult to work with. Uh, but anyway, what's the, di- what's the alternative to existing and exterminating and ending? Is there a third option? And that will be the topic for the third of the Four Noble Truths for next week. So a couple of things I want to say quickly. One thing quickly. Uh, I'm very much appreciating all these, all of you who are coming and joining and saying hello. And I think some of you are starting to feel a sense of community just from the chat box there. And, and I thought that perhaps um, next week at the end of uh, our Friday uh, thing here, maybe we, those of you who would like to, we could switch to a Zoom meeting and I'll post the Zoom uh, account maybe in the chat box so it's not discoverable by the rest of the world. And um, and if you'd like to, um, you know, have a little town meeting, a global meeting to talk about things or ask some questions that way. But also we can do some breakout group, maybe a breakout group where some of you in some random way have a chance to meet some of the other ones of you who are doing, um, you know, been doing this now, some of you, for many weeks and uh, kind of to kind of see what the pleasure is of and the value is of coming together a little more f- more fully as a community. So we'll we'll uh, do that at the end. And now, if any of you would like to stay on, uh, then um, I'll try to take maybe fifteen minutes or so. If you have any questions you'd like to ask about this four noble true stuff or anything, 
Uh, I will try my best to track the questions here. And the Zoom account we have has 500, uh, big enough for 500 people. So I'm hoping that that's plenty. And that not every single one of you who are been coming to here wants to come that particular time. And we'll keep doing it, um, you know, over, uh, you know, maybe periodically. And so if you miss it, it's okay. So, um, well, very nice that people are appreciating this idea of doing it. Could you, oops, let's see. Could you please clarify if there's a difference between Abhava and Vibhava? Oh, yeah. Vibhava. Yeah, you know, it's possible I was wrong about the Pali. It could be that it's Bhava and Vibhava in this particular uh, text. You know, I don't really know if there's a difference. Uh, v, v is uh, maybe a more emphatic kind of than A. A is not. Maybe V is a little more, uh, has to do with a craving for not existing. So maybe that's why Bhikkhu Bodhi translated as extermination. Um, I'll look at it and see, and uh, look into it. And I think many years ago I kind of researched this, but, um, and uh, so thank you for bringing it up. Have you written about the Four Noble Truths as you are discussed them today in any of your books? No, not in any of my books. Um, uh, I've uh, written uh, some more scholarly article, uh, drafts of scholarly articles on this topic. Uh, and um, uh, part of the purpose of this is that um, some of what you heard, heard from me this week is kind of a relatively new ideas that I've come up with by over the last 10 years of doing some real in-depth research into the suttas. And so I've done some uh, draft of what I hope to be serious scholarly articles laying out this very clearly uh, how this is the case uh, in the suttas. It seems that some of this interpretation about the Four Noble Truths being uh, insight into inconstancy uh, has been overlooked, even though now that I see it there, it's like this open secret in the text. It's hundreds and hundreds of times it talks about, uh, the text it talks about seeing um, uh, the importance of seeing, uh, and use, as other other uh, subjects, not always uh, suffering, but seeing suffering, seeing X, the arising of X, the ceasing of X, and the practice leading to the cessation of X. And uh, and it's clearly synonymous with seeing the appearance and disappearance, the rising and passing of things, seeing inconstancy, and uh, and that this is really held out to be the liberating insight. And because the Four Noble Truths have been kind of like the predominant way of understanding the central teachings of Buddhism, that's been uh, projected back on the earliest text, and we've actually missed uh, seeing what the real liberating insight that's emphasized in the text because of this projection back of later interpretations. So the, I've laid this out very, very carefully, but it's not really ready to share with people because um, I, um, I need to work on it more. And, uh, and, uh, and a Dharma teacher doesn't have much time for that. So, so uh, when, the time, when I have some more time, I'll do it. I, like, I love this one. Uh, the idea of craving for non-becoming created, uh, becoming makes me giggle. I struggle not to move because I'm more used to moving meditation with yoga. This is helpful. Um, yeah, I'm so glad that you like. I like the lighting. Um, 
I figured out how to bl- create a little barrier for it. I don't know if you noticed earlier, I was almost blinded by it. And so um, I hear aspects of dependent origination in this talk of the second noble truth, specifically links eight and 11. Can you comment on the relationship of these two teachings? Yes, this is one of the reasons why some people uh, have the conditionality interpretation of the second noble truth because it's very similar to um, to uh, uh, what goes on in the in the twelve fold sequence of dependent dependent arising of suffering and um, in in it there's uh, based on sense contact there has to be sense contact first that sense contact uh, is a condition for there being either uh, uh, pleasure or pain comfort or discomfort uh, that pleasure or pain is the condition for the arising of uh, craving, the what we're talking about in the second noble truth. So, without some kind of some kind of pleasure or pain or discomfort, there won't be any craving. That craving is a condition for um, clinging. So, craving is one thing, and then when it gets translated into doing something about it, it's clinging, holding on, and uh, and that leads to becoming. Um, bhava and bhava leads to birth and birth leads to sickness, old age, grief lamentation pain, distress and so forth so it's very closely connected and in fact uh, I said there are five different interpretations of the four, that Buddha has only has five different interpretations of the four noble truths and um, and uh, there are th- basically three different categories of them, but one of them um, uh, d- uh, defines the second noble truth as the twelve-fold uh, sequence of dependent arising. The whole thing, the whole, all twelve, not just the end of it, is the arising of suffering. And then uh, the third noble truth is the reverse of uh, dependent ar- arising. It's a twelve-fold. What I call the twelve-fold sequence of cessation, dependent cessation, that goes on. So there, the second and third noble truth are clearly connected to um, the teachings of dependent arising. I'm sorry, I'm doing that sequence. It's a little bit hard for me to track all these with the chat when they come. Inconstancy is also translated as impermanence, question mark. Yes, the most common way in English of translating impermanence, uh, anicca, is as impermanence. The issue that around the translating as impermanence is many people will interpret it that mean that something exists now, but it's not going to always exist. It's impermanent, so sooner or later, it's not, no longer going to uh, exist. Um, the day is impermanent because... By the night, it'll be gone. Mountains are impermanent because in a few hundred million years, some of these mountains will have washed away. The sun is impermanent because in a few billion years, it'll go up and disappear. Um, But what the Buddha is talking about is how things appear and disappear. And he has a lot of different words, languages he uses uh, uh, in Pali that are synonyms of appearing and disappearing, uh, coming and going, arising and passing. Um, and so it's really clear this is what he means, this uh, ongoing uh, inconstancy of things. 
And that means that things don't have to disappear and end once and for all. So the sun a day days are in constant. They come and go. And uh, they'll come and go until the sun, as long as the sun is, uh, I guess, in the sky or something. And um, and so uh, uh, the uh, fundamental insight, liberating insight, is this uh, uh, rising and passing. So probably inconstancy works better. And uh, Nietzsche, what's being negated with the ah, on Nietzsche, doesn't sell, actually means constancy. So it makes sense to translate it that way. So yesterday, did you say that craving refers more to rebirth than worldly craving? So yes, I said that yesterday in relationship to a very particular teaching about the Four Noble Truths. That um, uh, So there's one, it's one of the interpretations. And, um, and that interpretation is uh, um, um, solidified, in a sense, in a text called, the, usually referred to as the first Buddha's first sermon, and um, and it's a uh, almost it probably certainly the Buddha had a first teaching, but uh, that this particular text is his first teaching uh, is very unlikely, and uh, one of the reasons unlikely is that there are parts of this text that parts of one of the teachings about the four noble truths that it teaches, else talk about later in this series, um, that are quite inspiring. But, um, uh, and some people see, see it that it's very important. Uh, the, the, um, if he said it at this very first teaching, if it was important, you think that he would re- say it again later. In fact, the Buddha is very repetitive in the suttas. He, teachings, he teaches things over and over again, exactly the same way, same words, in many different ways, uh, and very, you know, in the same ways. And so if this teaching was really his first teaching and important, you'd expect it, re- it would reappear. But it hardly ever appears again in the suttas, maybe one or two other places, kind of in passing. And, um, and chances are this is all represents a later interpolation into the suttas. Not everything that is attributed to the Buddha uh, is likely to have been his teachings. And so this idea that uh, the, the second noble truth involves the craving that leads to, to rebirth um, is not exactly an interpretation, though that's what it's become. It's, uh, it, for, for the early text, it's an application or an elaboration that when someone becomes fully awakened as a Buddha, the traditional idea is that then they will not be reborn. And the reason they're not being reborn is because the specific craving that leads to rebirth has ended. The idea that uh, that uh, it's not really referring then to ordinary worldly craving, and so for that, uh, those of us interested in how we suffer from day to day and you know all this, uh, these other interpretations of the four noble truths are much more useful, rather than being fixated on this idea of the rebirth, the the craving that leads to rebirth. So, my friends, uh, thank you. And I uh, appreciate all these questions. And um, isn't it impossible to not be becoming? The question is, how are we becoming? So isn't it impossible to not be becoming? Well, that's the, you know, the cliffhanger 
<laughs> that I'm ending uh, this talk today, that uh, next week we'll talk about uh, you know the alternative to becoming and not becoming, and uh, as we talk about the third noble truth. So thank you so much, everyone, and I look forward to our time next week and and to setting up the Zoom for Friday. Thank you.